Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Now, over the past few weeks, I've been sharing the audio version of my President's Chapel messages to Gateway Seminary as a part of this podcast. But now today, I'm returning to our former uh, procedure or our former practice of talking instead about practical issues related to ministry leadership and trying to solve some of the problems that are arising right now because of COVID-19. So today, I want to talk with you about developing benevolence ministries and particularly developing benevolence ministries in response to the pandemic and helping you to think through how to do those more effectively. If your church has not been involved in any specific benevolence ministries, how to perhaps start them. And if you are involved in them, maybe a few pointers to streamline or improve what you're already doing. Now, this idea for this podcast actually came to me because a new church about two years old uh, called me a few days ago and asked if they could set up a consultative uh, conference meeting for me to talk with them about developing benevolence ministries. And while I've been involved in these in various capacities over the years, I'd never really sat down and uh, you know written out my ideas or written out a plan, but that conference call forced me to do so. And the church found the conference very helpful, and I thought, well, some of that information might be helpful to more churches, and so that's why I'm sharing it here today. So today I want to do three things on the podcast. First, I want to ask and answer three key questions that form, uh, that help you form how you want to do benevolence ministry. And then I want to talk about three different models of how uh, benevolence ministry can be organized in a church. And then I want to finish up with what I call best practices, and I've got six or seven of those, just some best practices statements about uh, things I've observed over the years in churches that do benevolence ministry well that I think uh, do help us to avoid some of the pitfalls or difficulties that might otherwise come our way. So first of all, let's talk about these key questions. One of the first questions you have to ask and answer is, uh, how do you want to handle the money that may be involved in a benevolence ministry? And primarily by that, I mean, how do you want to handle money that may be given for benevolence purposes and how do you want to distribute money uh, to uh, others for ben- to meet benevolence needs? How do you want to account for and manage the money? Well, you have to decide if you're going to do that as a church or you're going to leave that for people to do on an individual basis. Now, if you want to account for the money as a church, then you're going to need a control system for giving, meaning that you're going to need either an envelope system or a designation system on a check or an electronic gift. But just like any other gift that comes to your church, you're going to need to be able to receive that in a way that can be uh, documented that it was for its purpose and from where the donor it came from. Second, I think if you do decide to account for the money in this way, that you're going to actually get more money than if you don't. Uh, If a person can give a benevolence gift to your church that is tax tax deductible and that does uh, give them some benefit in that regard, I think you'll actually get more. Now, I know that there's some pushback on this because people today like organic ministries and organic movements. Uh, They like GoFundMe pages where everybody just goes on and gives $5 and takes care of a particular need. And that is certainly a model that you can use. But 
As we go along here, I'm going to talk about some of the difficulties of how that model works itself out in church ministry, but nevertheless, it is a possibility. If you decide to go that direction, however, let me encourage you strongly to distance that completely from your church finances or from any hint of your church controlling or accounting for those funds. This can get sticky. If you allow this kind of GoFundMe approach to be promoted in your church uh, and the money is given and it's misused or the people who give it don't like what's done with it or there's some confusion that arises, to be sure, if you've allowed it to be promoted, they're going to come back to you as the leader and say, what are you going to do about this? So be careful about these because uh, if you don't distance your church and your church finances from this kind of approach, you could wind up being held accountable for it or responsible for it in ways you had not anticipated. Another problem with this kind of organic, uh, spontaneous kind of funding is you risk competing agendas in fundraising. Uh, You have one group that's raising money for a person to uh, pay their tuition and another group is raising money for a person to to pay their rent and another person for a medical need. And you start having these competing agendas that come up where you have different people in your church or your small group uh, competing for resources because there's no centralized way to receive and disperse the funds. So the first key question is, how do you want to account for or manage the money? And if you want to account for it and manage it as a church, then you're going to need a control system that allows donors to be recognized, gifts to be recorded, and then um, you're going to have to have a distribution system that reflects that as well so that there's policies and procedures for how that money will flow out. As I said, if you do this, I think you'll likely get more money than if you use the other approach, but the other spontaneous, organic type of approach can certainly be used. Now, a second key question you have to ask is, are you going to help members, attenders, or anyone? If you're going to focus your benevolence efforts on members only, then you're definitely going to have more accountability, and you're going to have greater control, and you're going to have a deeper knowledge of the people that you're helping and what you're really doing with the resources. Now, if you expand that to attenders, meaning people that occasionally attend your church or have some connection to your church or maybe have a connection through a member to your church, you're definitely going to expand the base and the impact uh, of your benevolence ministry, and you'll definitely have more opportunity and perhaps even opportunity for evangelism, outreach, or establishing relationships with uh, 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 Christians who are not actively involved in a church. However, if you decide to go to the next level, and that is you're going to do benevolence for anyone, meaning you're going to do it for the community, now you're truly opening yourself up uh, to all kinds of possibilities and opportunities, but also to significantly greater risk, a risk that you're going to misuse the resources by helping a person in an inappropriate way, risk that you're going to help people without really fully knowing enough about them to make a great, a, a complete determination about their situation, a risk that they're going to find you some way legally liable or responsible for what you've done in helping them or not helping them. So you are uh, opening yourself up to, to more risk. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that you should only do benevolence for members. I'm just helping you think through who are we really going to do this for. If it's going to be for members, attenders, or for anyone, and each one of those decisions has ramifications about how much money will be given, how much will be, how the money will be used, what kinds of help you'll be able to provide, what kind of risk you're able to take on, and what kind of risk you're able to manage, and even the scope of what you're able to accomplish and the purposes uh, for which you're trying to, uh, to, uh, to do the benevolence ministry. 
If you're going to focus it on members only, for example, your primary purpose of your benevolence ministry is to build the fellowship of your church and demonstrate care among believers. But if you're going to take benevolence into the community, <clears throat> then you have a definite opportunity for evangelism, for communicating the gospel, and for expanding the footprint and ministry of your church. Now let's move to the third question. Third question is, what kind of needs do you want to meet? It's a very rare church that is big enough to have a comprehensive benevolence ministry that has a multi-orbed need-meeting possibilities. I think most churches need to decide, are we going to provide food, clothing, shelter, and in the context of shelter, perhaps utilities? Are we going to provide assistance with medical care or with transportation? What are the limitations of what we're going to provide? Just because you launch into a benevolence ministry doesn't mean your church has to provide all of these things. <clears throat> you may need to only do one of them, and that one may be determined by lots of different factors, like what are the other churches in your community doing? Do you want to join in with them, or do you want to do something that contrasts with them so that people can have a different kind of assistance? Uh, it may uh, be decided by what's available in your community in terms of other programs or other possibilities for people to receive this kind of aid. Uh, it may be because of the resources that your church has. For example, if you have uh, access to a lot of food product uh, that can come to you rather cheaply or inexpensively, you may want to think maybe focusing on a food uh, distribution program. But you may have <clears throat> medical care resources in your church, doctors, nurses, physicians, assistants, and others who could volunteer time so your church might be able to do more medical care in the community. So lots of different factors, but what I really want to emphasize is not how the, all these different options have to come together, but really emphasize that you don't have to do them all. You can limit to one, two, three things that you really feel like you can do well and just become known for the, as the church that does this kind of benevolence program and let that be what you do and do well. So those are the three key questions. Do you want to account for and manage the money or how do you want to do that? Are you going to help members, attenders, or anyone? And third, what kinds of needs do you really want to meet? Now let's talk about some models of how to set this up. I've really basically worked with three different models or been asked about three different models, and so I want to summarize my comments in those categories today. The first model for a church involving itself in benevolence ministry is to use an outside organization. Now, this was how our church plant and new church in Oregon decided to approach benevolence, was to support an outside organization, and for our community, that was the Salvation Army. They had a very robust ministry in our community. Uh, they were doing very good work, and we felt like that we would be better served to work with them than we were to set up our own programs of benevolence. So when someone came to us with a need for food, clothing, shelter, medical care, these kinds of things, we would refer them to, or in some cases, take them to the Salvation Army. And because we had developed a relationship with those leaders and because we contributed to them financially, we sent them volunteers. Every Christmas, our church took a prominent place in the community and provided all the bell ringers for their kettles uh, for that area. I mean, we were really invested in this outside organization because we saw it as the best way to do benevolence in our community. Now, uh, when you choose an outside organization, it, it comes with some strengths and it comes with some, some weaknesses. And one of the first strengths is that uh, you're really working with people who are highly skilled in this area of ministry. 
they know what they're doing in the particular area where they've developed expertise, or in the case of the Salvation Army, maybe multiple areas where they've developed expertise. And so by using an outside organization like that, uh, you can uh, have greater expertise than you can have as a church. Another strength they have is they can limit the serial abusers. Now, I know this is hard for some of you to believe, but there are actually people in our culture who go from church to church to church, organization to organization to organization, just getting all the public assistance they can in order to, uh, set to support the lifestyle they've chosen. Now, when you use an outside organization that keeps records of who they help and how they've helped them, uh, they limit these serial abusers because they can't keep going back to them over and over and over again because their uh, scam, if you want to call it that, has been revealed. Now, uh, uh, another strength, I think, is that you typically can get more uh, bang for the buck, if you want to say it that way. When you make a contribution to one of these organizations, because many people are pooling their resources, uh, you're able to get more effective work, greater scope of aid, uh, more expertise, than, and you're getting more for the money that you're putting in. So while your church may only spend a few thousand a year on benevolence, because others are contributing also thousands, this organization is able to thrive because of, again, the cooperation of many at that, at that uh, point. Now, there's a couple of weaknesses, though. Uh, one weakness is people can feel detached. There are compassionate people in your church who want to be involved in hands-on ministry to others, who want to do benevolence-type ministry, and they may feel that uh, the church isn't fulfilling all of its responsibilities by not having its own benevolence program, and therefore they feel like they've some, some been somewhat shortchanged in their opportunity to do ministry through the church. That's a legitimate concern. It's a weakness of uh, using an outside organization that sometimes the people inside don't feel a need to, uh, to do so or to be involved. Another weakness can be that when you use an outside organization, sometimes you have to take a little bit of the bad with the good. In other words, they may do something that you don't support or don't particularly like, and you may wonder, well, should we really be involved with this organization? Well, you'll have to make that decision on your own, of course, but uh, most of us uh, in ministry recognize that not every ministry organization does everything perfectly, not even your church and we still can find ways to cooperate with them. And so while that may be a weakness that you have to address, it doesn't necessarily preclude you using an outside organization. Now a second model that you can use is what I call the committee or the task force or the deacon-deaconess model. In other words, you do benevolence within your church, but you set aside a small group who's responsible for the benevolence ministries. Now that can be, as I said, a committee, a task force, or deacons or deaconesses. Now, uh, in my church in Missouri, where I first started out in pastoral ministry, the deacons of our church ran the benevolence program. And quite frankly, they did a really good job with it. So I'm familiar with this kind of model and really appreciate how a church can set up its own benevolence ministry and operate it by some group in the church being responsible for its implementation. Now again, this has some strengths and weaknesses. One of the strengths is uh, it does raise some of the control and it does uh, allow you to uh, diagnose some of the serial users or the, the repeat users. It does give you a, a, a group of people who can develop some expertise in benevolence ministries and who develop some ability to know how to meet the needs of people and what kinds of needs they can meet. Another strength is it does give a church and church leadership greater control over the program. I was not involved day-to-day -day in the benevolence ministry of our church, but I was still the pastor, and that gave me oversight of the program, and so I was able to give it some direction along the way, and the church, when needed, could speak into the program as well. 
and uh, the people involved in actually going out and doing the benevolence uh, visits and making the benevolence decisions about how to help people can also develop some real diagnostic ability in how to do that and some keen insight into it. I'll just tell you one story about that. When we were uh, in Missouri and our deacons were running our benevolence ministry, we received a phone call one day from a person who said, um, I've, I've lost my wallet, my credit cards, and all my cash, and I need some financial assistance to get home uh, from this business trip where I'm working in your community. Well, we passed that along to two of our deacons, and they went down to the hotel to meet with the guy. Uh, they said, well, tell us your, your situation. He said, I'm really glad you guys came out. I'm a, I'm a Christian. I, I live in a city uh, two, 300 miles from here. I'm here doing business. Um, I've lost my wallet. I've lost my credit cards. Um, I, 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 was, I, I was out running, and uh, apparently I lost everything. Well, our deacon said, tell me more about that. Where were you running? And he said, oh, I usually run two, three miles a day. I went down this street, I went around that corner down there, I went down this area by that park, and I came back, and, and somewhere along the way, uh, I've lost it, and I've retraced my steps as best I can, but I just can't find anything. Deacon said, uh, so you, you run two to three miles a day? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I, ha I have been doing that for quite a while. Well, what he didn't know was our deacon had run two marathons, and this guy that had claimed to have lost his wallet out running was about 5'9 and weighed about 300 pounds. So there was something not quite right about the story, and our deacon, because of his running experience and his just spiritual insight, was recognizing something's not right here. So after he talked to the guy for a little while, uh, he just really couldn't get a piece about it, but he also couldn't say that it wasn't real. So he said, I'll tell you what we'll do. Uh, we, we definitely want to help you. We want to take you down the street to the Super 8, and we'll check you into a hotel room there, and we'll give you a gift certificate to eat across the street at McDonald's, and we'll, uh, uh, that'll get you through the night and into tomorrow. And then you say you've got gas in your car, but, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll give you a gas card to give you $20 worth of gas, and we'll, we'll get you on down the road to, back toward home. The guy got indignant. He said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to the Super 8. I, I can't eat at McDonald's. That, that, that's not good for me. He said, I'm, I'm already checked into this hotel right here where we're, we're standing. Well, it was the nicest hotel in our town. And he said, I'll just eat here at the hotel restaurant and leave it on the bill, and you can just pay the bill tomorrow. And our deacon said, no, no, we're not, we're not doing that. You see, this money that's been given to us by our church members, we have to make it go as far as we can. And while we're perfectly willing to give you shelter and food and even help you with your transportation, uh, we're not willing to do that on your terms. You have to accept what we can offer you on our terms. And the guy started uh, ranting about how he couldn't believe this was happening to them. And the deacon said, well, you know what? You don't really need to worry about it because it's not happening to you anymore. And they got up and walked out and just left him standing there. Now, that's what I mean when I say people can develop some diagnostic ability. My deacon wasn't a social worker. He, he, he was a production planner. Uh, he, he wasn't a, a professionally trained interviewer or investigator, but he had enough good sense to ask a few basic questions. Uh, he did have the life experience of being a marathon runner, and he was looking at a person who claimed to run two or three miles a day and thought, this guy couldn't run two or three feet a day. How can I really help him the way he's demanding? But yet there was something about it that he just couldn't prove, and it was a he said, she said type situation, or in this case, a he said, he said. And so what do you do? What do you do? So he's offered to help, but the help was turned down, and so he said that clinched it. We walked out. 
All I'm simply saying is that if you set aside a committee or a task force or deacons and deaconesses and give them responsibility for your benevolence ministry, it can be done and it can be done well because they will have control of the funds and the kinds of needs they meet. They can interview and limit the repeat users or abusers. Uh, It helps the church have greater control and these people that are in charge of it can develop expertise of diagnosing who to help and how to help and what that means. Now, this kind of approach obviously also has some weaknesses. Uh, People that do this kind of ministry are volunteers. They have a limited amount of time to invest. Uh, They're going to make some mistakes along the way. Uh, They have to make the hard calls and they're not always going to get them right. Uh, Some of these kinds of weaknesses are just built into the system and you have to decide how you're going to manage them, but you're never going to be able to eliminate them. So while this is a good approach, it also has to be measured against some other kinds of strengths and weaknesses that go with the other approach of using an outside organization. Then there's a third approach, and this is the one that's been talked about most recently and that I've been asked about most recently. And quite frankly, I'm reluctant to talk about it very much because I don't have a lot of personal experience with it. So I'm going to talk now about what others have told me and what I've observed, but honestly, uh, not really done this one personally as a church leader. And that is that you use your small group structure to be your benevolence structure. Now, the advantage of this is that your small groups are really closest to the needs of people. And the people in a small group know each other well. And they can discern among themselves who has real need and and who doesn't. So there are some strengths to this approach uh, because you have that kind of intimate knowledge of each other. Uh, That also might lead to generosity among the group, strengthening the relationships in the group. So there are some strengths of trying to do benevolence in a small group and through a small group structure. But there's also some weaknesses that I think you need to be alerted to. Uh, First of all, in a small group context like that, it may be hard to say no to someone and maintain the relationships. It may be hard to say, we understand that you're hurting or that you have a need or that you think that we need to help you, but in this particular case, we're just not your solution. That may be very hard to say and very hard to maintain fellowships or relationships after that happens. Another thing about this kind of small group approach is it can make the wealthy people in the small group feel pressured and they may find their relationships a bit uncomfortable. I know a number of years ago I was pastoring a man who employed a large number of people. When he joined our church, he said, listen, pastor, Uh, there's just one thing you need to know, and that is I don't hire church members, and I definitely don't talk to people at church about employment. He said, I've been a Christian a while and been a successful businessman for a while, and people at church come up to me all the time and ask me for jobs, and please don't send them to me, and just know I'm not going to have those conversations here. He said, if someone asks me for a job, I tell them, you know, you need to go to my HR department, you need to apply, and if you're competent, and pass through the testing and the rigor of working for our company, then perhaps there might be a job for you. He said, I'm not being cold-hearted, but I'm running a company, not a charity, and I can only hire people that are competent to do the work that is assigned to them on a daily basis. He, He, by that conversation, I knew that because he had wealth and because people in our church knew that he had resources, because our church wasn't that large, it was a little hard to hide, um, 
because of all that, I knew he was uncomfortable being approached by people in the church asking him for money or jobs or other things. So if you're going to run your benevolence ministry through your small group program, know that that kind of unsettledness or that kind of uh, tension may exist. Now, another problem with running this through your small groups is that you'll have uneven levels of response. For example, if you have a small group that's all college students, they're not going to need money. So they're not going to be able to help each other very much. You have another small group that's all senior adults. Well, they have more resources, but really they probably also have fewer needs. So how do you get these two matched up with each other? Well, it's not simple enough to just say you match up two small groups and let them help each other. I I think that's going to cause even more difficulties. You try to decide, well, which two small groups do we match up? So running your benevolence program through your small group structure and only through your small group structure may have some strengths, but it may also have some weaknesses. Now, what I've suggested recently to the church that I consulted with, and what I might suggest here today, is a combination of these approaches might be appropriate. For example, you might say, we're going to refer, refer all of our drug and alcohol uh, benevolence issues to either Set Free Ministries or Salvation Army or someone like that, because quite frankly, they have expertise we don't have. So our policy as a church on benevolence issues related to drugs or alcohol is to refer them to outside agencies. You might then say, but our church has developed an expertise in this kind of benevolence ministry. We do a food pantry, and we do that very well. Or we do medical care, and we do that very well. Or we provide clothing, and we do that very well. And you may be able as a church to pick out a niche of benevolence ministry and do that well. Then you might say, well, we want to distribute benevolence within our church family through our small group structure. In other words... We're asking small group leaders to surface needs and share them with our task force or committee or deacons or deaconesses or whoever runs your benevolence program. We're asking the small group leaders to surface those needs, but we're going to meet those needs uh, by a broader-based decision and then funnel those resources back into small groups. So these three models, outside organization, committee task force, deacons, deaconesses, or small groups, they can all have a part in a benevolence program But they are three distinct models you might want to look at in how you're going to organize your benevolence ministry. Now, finally, let me conclude with some best practices. Some statements simply to help you understand some things I've observed over the years that no matter how a church organized its benevolence program or how it answered those key questions at the beginning of the podcast, these best practices seem to mark the churches that did benevolence ministry the best. Number one, decide the kind of needs you will meet and then limit yourself to those needs and those needs only. You don't have to be a one church meets all needs in your community kind of place. You can say, we do this, we do this well, let's just focus on this particular need. Second, decide a limit on the amount of assistance per instance and the amount of assistance per year that you'll provide to any person or family. You will find, as I did when I was a pastor, that there will be certain families that come back time and time and time and time again. It is permissible to say we help this many dollars a month and this many dollars a year with any particular family. And exceptions to that are rare and can only be approved by, and then you specify the leadership structure of your church. This makes it possible to help people and to help people generously, but to control the repeat requesters who have the continual need and don't seem to be able to solve the issues they're facing. Three, decide on a simple application and record keeping process. 
When I say simple, I mean name, email, phone number, maybe address if they'll give it to you. Every person you help should provide you some basic documentation so that you know their name, their address, their phone number, their email, so that you can have the opportunity to keep a record of who you've helped and how much you've helped them along the way. This is also important for another reason. You may have read recently in the media about a food, a church, a small church, a small Southern Baptist church in Utah that was doing a food distribution. They received the food from governmental agencies and passed it along. They were a distribution point for their area. And someone slipped in some drug-tainted candy, uh, not tainted by a malicious person, but uh, made that way to be sold in like a marijuana store. Uh, it got mixed into the uh, distribution somehow. That probably was malicious. And the church distributed that candy. Well, a couple of children became ill, had to be hospitalized. And then the church got on the phone and started calling everyone because everyone who came through the food bank had to give their name, their email, or their phone number. And the church was glad they had that because they were able to follow up quickly and get those uh, resources or get that uh, candy back before it did more damage in the community. And I want to emphasize uh, this church didn't do anything wrong. They, they had protocols in place. They had good uh, steps in place. They had good supervision in place. They've been doing this ministry for years. They just got involved in a bad situation, but this basic record keeping was very helpful for them in that time. Then number four, decide who will receive and distribute funds. Will the church receive the funds? And if so, then who will have the authority to distribute the funds? Who has the ability to say, we're writing this check for this need or this person or this situation or to take care of this issue that's come up? You can, you can allocate that or decide that uh, or, or, or send that out to any group or any individual or any person you want, but the church should make a decision about that. Then number five, uh, I advise don't give cash to anyone ever. In other words, you can pay bills for someone, you can pay a motel bill for someone, you can provide them a gift, a, a, a card that they can obtain food at a restaurant, uh, you can provide them uh, rent money by paying their rent directly but not giving them the check. Uh, you can give out food uh, without giving them money to buy food. Uh, unfortunately, all too often, people who are in need also have some destructive behaviors that are a part of their lives or temptations, at least, toward destructive behaviors. And I have too many experiences with rent, grocery, or utility money turning into drugs, alcohol, or rented pornography. And so I'm simply saying uh, it's best never to give out money, but to give out services instead or to pay for someone's need uh, and take care of it directly. Number six, you have to balance the compassion with the accountability in all kinds of benevolence assistance. There are some people who are out there who are just going to try to take advantage of you. You need people to have accountability in the system and accountability in how they view life to go out with you on those visits. But there are also people who are hurting who don't need a lecture or don't need to be held accountable, who don't need to be told what to do better next time. They just need help. That's where you need the compassion people. So you need the balance. And so when you're thinking about who's going to run your benevolence ministry for your church, it's not just one kind of people you need on that task force or in that committee or in that deacon body or with those deaconesses. It's really a mix. You need some compassion people. You need some accountability people. And I think you know what I mean. You need both sides to view a situation and make a good decision about how to best help people who are in need. And then finally, uh, you do need to provide some basic training and supervision for people who are leading benevolence ministry. Uh, there are uh, books that can be read about this and webinars that can be watched, and there can be best practices like I'm talking about on this podcast that can be reviewed by other people in your community who have done this longer than you have. Get some basic training, some basic supervision, and help people learn to do this ministry well and do it well over time. 
COVID-19 has intensified the need for benevolence ministry, but it's not a new thing. Your church can do benevolence ministry more effectively by putting some of the things into practice we've talked about today. And if your church has never had an intentional, structured, strategic benevolence ministry for your community, then perhaps the podcast today will give you the framework to think through some key questions, some optional models, and then some best practices for how to do benevolence ministry. It's a crucial time in our culture right now. It's an important time in your community for the church to step up and serve. You can do that in practical ways by meeting the benevolence needs that you discover. I lay this before you today as a challenge. Take it, put it into practice as you lead on.